Okay, so we're in, I was going to say in Ruth's Gospel then for a minute. That's a bit of a, <laughs> bit, bit of a slip, isn't it? We're, we're in, the, in, in the account of the, uh, of the book of Ruth. Um, we're going to look at Ruth 2. I'm going to read the whole of Ruth 2. And um, then we'll see where we go from there. It says, um, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the, cla- of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And she said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to, his, to the young man who was in charge of his reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she, claimed, so she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also put out some from the bundles for her and leave, her, and leave it for her to glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she'd gleaned, and it was about an an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she'd gleaned. She also bought out what and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she'd worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabites said, Besides, he said to me, You shall t- keep close to my young men until they finish all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. You can't miss um, this thing that's called gleaning in, in, 
in this particular chapter. And our modern understanding, or the way that people use the term gleaning nowadays, is, it, um, it is, it is, is, is that it is the process of gathering information that's not immediately obvious and generally from disparate sources. Um, and that's not what this means. This, this, this comes from, it's, a, it's an archaic meaning and it's rooted in an agrarian or agricultural society. It basically means gathering leftover grain after a harvest. Um, and its use in the Bible has its origins in the laws of Moses. Um, so in Leviticus chapter 19, um, the people of God are told when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap your field right up to its edge. Neither gather the gleanings after your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You must leave them for the poor and the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. Um, and then in Leviticus 23, 22, um, Again, the people of God are told, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. And in Deuteronomy, again, they're told, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the land, do not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, don't go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not strip it afterwards. It will be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. Now, in an agrarian, in an agricultural society where there is no social care system, they didn't have the DSS in the time of the judges. They didn't have the Labour and the Conservative government arguing about how much benefits people should get um, from the government to provide for them. They had nothing. And this was a provision for those who didn't have income because otherwise they'd be destitute, they'd starve. And the law of Moses in giving us instruction provides one way in which the poor were to be provided for. Without the gleanings, they wouldn't have enough to eat. In fact, harvesting too completely was frowned upon. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it said, don't go right to the edge of the field. It said, if you drop something, don't go back and get it. So leave it there for the people that need it. Um, it, it. Deuteronomy forbids what you might describe as double harvesting. Why? Because complete harvesting leaves nothing for the poor. So gleaning does two things, at least. Um, the, law of uh, the, the law for gleaning, firstly, is it provides a source of food for those who have none. And it combats this headlong rush into selfishness that we're so very prone for. It, it reminds us of our responsibilities to look after those people who are not as well off as, as ourselves as, as, as we are now. And, and a couple of things strike me about this practice. Uh, firstly, we don't live in an agrarian society anymore, do we? We don't live in an agricultural culture anymore. I mean, here in Somerset, we do have like harvest festivals and harvest homes and stuff like that. So, so we do have some like hangovers from it, if you like. Um, but the huge bulk of people living in 21st century of Britain don't work the land. Well, they are. But at the minute, many, very few farming families have actually survived the march of the modern age. Most farming families no longer own the land that they're farming. They're merely farming land owned by multinational businesses. They don't have permission to leave stuff on the ground or in the ground for the people who, who, who don't have any food or, or anything. In fact, they, 
wouldn't go and do it anyway, I, I guess. Um, ah, getting on to that. Even if farmers are family-owned and run farms, margins are so low, they can't, sometimes can't even afford to eat their own produce. Gleaning in the biblical sense is simply not a thing. But, like Denise has just pointed out, we do have schemes in place to allow the poor to access food. The most obvious being food banks. And they're a relatively new phenomenon, or at least their visibility in the culture at large is. Um, but the concept is the same. It's leaving something you don't need for, for people who do need it. So that people without income or without sufficient income do have something to go to, do have something to survive on. Um, in the shop, Sovereign Shopping Centre in Western, I don't know if you've been there recently, but one of the shops has been opened up and it's called a free community fridge. Have you seen it? You know, and unwanted food is displayed there for people to just go in and get. And there are other things like Olio. Have you heard of Olio? Olio is a mechanism for getting unwanted food for free. Now, actually, with Olio, that that is more about not putting food into landfill than it is about feeding the boar. But the, but but the consequence is the same. It means that people who can't afford food can get hold of it. And food banks stock clothing as well sometimes for people who don't have it, clothing and shoes and stuff like that. Um, for people who can't afford to go to Marks and Spencers or Asda or Next or whichever clothes, Matalan or whichever sh shop you buy your clothes from. I mean, when I was a child, most of my clothes were pass-me-downs. I had an older brother and we had two older, again, cousins. So Keith was about seven or eight years older than me. Richard was about five years older than me. Nigel was two years older than me. By the time I'd had, a, had an item of clothing, it had been passed down for boys. Boys. Can you imagine what it looked like, some of it? <laughs> or they came from one of the many jumble sales that we had regularly. Do you remember jumble sales? I do, they don't get them very much anymore nowadays, but it was, would have been a hall like this and there'd been trestle tables all the way around it. And basically people would just pile everything high on all the trestle tables and someone would stand behind it. And you'd go in and you could buy something at a ridiculously low price. I remember on one occasion I bought an old World War II RAF greatcoat for £3. Wish I'd kept it actually. People give what they don't need so that others can benefit. We don't see so many jumble sales nowadays, do we? Because culture has started to see value in second-hand things. They call it pre-loved. Yeah. Yeah. But nowadays we've got things like Etsy, eBay, Vinted, Depop, Spock, Facebook Marketplace, car boot sales. People don't donate like they used to. One thing that marks out God's people is their willingness to provide for the people who don't have anything. And secondly, the practice of gleaning is one where the poor are provided for, but it does strike me um, that it's only subsistence on leftovers. Both the Old Testament provision and our culture's attitude, we do the bare minimum. We give our leftovers. We give the stuff we don't need anymore. We might buy extra food in the shops, but we'll only do that if we've got the surplus to do it. Our provision for the poor is the first thing to go if we start having to tighten our belts. And the same by and large is true of charitable giving. What people give to charities comes from their excess, usually. 
It's usually our last action and not our first thought. And the thing that stands out about the first believers in that description of the church that we find in the Acts in, in Jerusalem is they weren't like that. They gave out of their abundance. It says in, in Acts 4, it says, All the believers were one of heart and mind. No one claimed that anything he had was his own, um, but they shared everything they had. And it says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and bought the money from themselves and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to people as, any, as he had need. That's a description of that early church. God would call us not simply to give out of our extra. The way of the church should be to give out of our abundance. Um, the first portion, not the last portion. God deserves our first allegiance, not our legs, not our dregs, not our leftovers. Do we do that? Really? Do you do that? Do I? That's what I was thinking. Do I do that? Perhaps we would do well to stop and do a stock check of our weekly lives and ask God to show us where we're giving the dregs and where we're giving the leftovers and, uh, uh, to him and, and to challenge us to give him our first fruits, not our dregs, not our leftovers. All right, before I go on, I just want to talk about a Bible interpretation issue. And this is another point, actually. Um, it's kind of a side in a way, but it was triggered when I was reading the commentaries. Um, more than one of the commentaries started making statements about Boaz. Um, one of the commentators says, Boaz was so moved by Ruth's situation that he took steps to go beyond what was necessary to give for her. Um, now, this is a written account of, of the actions of a man 3,000 years ago. There is no way a commentator in the 20th century can know what his motivations were. Unless the text tells us. I mean, we do it with each other as well, actually. The number of times I've had my motivations questioned by people is astounding. You're doing that because. You're saying that because. And people don't know inside me. They don't know why I'm doing the things That's I right. do. I don't know why you're doing the things you do. And as, as a general rule, when we make judgments about other people and their motivations, it says far more about us than it does about them. We've got to be really, really careful. It happens quite commonly in all sorts of contexts. In any descriptive account of events, be then eyewitness account of a real event or recollection of events from the war or parable or fabricated tale, human beings have this great capacity to place themselves into the story. Um, and, we're, and, that, and that's part, it's because of a couple of reasons. One is, is we're very empathetic. Human beings have this ability to be really empathetic towards other people. And we've also got a great imagination. So we do that. We put ourselves in the story and then we attribute to the character in the story the feelings and emotions and motivations that we would have if we were that person. Now, I mean, that's why we do it. it that's partly why the parables of Jesus jump out at us today, because we put ourselves in that story and say, which character am I in this parable? And what would I feel? But we've got to be careful that we don't impose how we would feel or what we would think onto someone else who's in a text. Our sense of what we would do if we were in their shoes might give us an insight in the situation, and we might even be right, but we've got to be careful not to read more into the text than is actually there. Uh, for example, Luke 15, 
In Luke 15, you will find um, a parable that Jesus tells that is very well known. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and it describes the father at home, waiting for the son to come home. Um, and many preachers, and I mean many preachers, even build a story around this father, talking about how, how upset he was that his son had gone home and, and how desperate he was for his son to come back and, and how he was feeling. And it, it, they describe it anxiously scanning the horizon to look for his son and, and all of that kind of thing. But what was he think? What was he actually thinking? Nothing. He's a character in a story. He's a character, he's a, ma he's a made up character in a parable. <clears throat> he wasn't thinking anything, he's not a real human being. You cannot build a theology on something that you think a, 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 a character in a story might think, if you, or that you would think if you were that character in the story. We, there, actually, there is some emotion attributed to him, but it's an emotion that Jesus tells us in the parable. So when the boy comes home, we're told that the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So we know that he felt compassion because we're told by Jesus that the character in the story was felt compassion. And so, so, so that's, that's a legitimate thing to feel. But we have to be careful not to attribute motivations and feelings towards what things people do in the Bible than they're actually there. And as we look further into the story of Ruth, or into the account of Ruth, we'll see this love story develop between Ruth and Boaz. And our temptation will be to do exactly that, to attribute to Ruth and to Boaz emotions and motivations. Now, we may or may not be right, but let's resist the temptation to saying it with any degree of certainty about that's how they feel. All we can do is know what the Bible tells us that they did. And when the Bible tells us they had emotions, we can take it as read, but we can't impose what we would think or what we would feel into the story simply because that's what we would think or feel. Because someone else wouldn't necessarily think or feel that. Anyway, rant over. Let's get back. <laughs> um, it really struck me for, for Naomi and Ruth, despite coming back to Judea for a better life, they didn't get one. Things got worse, didn't they? They were reduced to gleaning. I wonder, again, notwithstanding what I've just said about, about um, emotions and motivations for doing things, not reading them in, but I do wonder if they thought they were going to get something better when they got back. Again, this is me wondering and not the text saying it. <coughs> um, bearing in mind what I said, the answer is we've got no way of knowing. Yeah, but they knew their, their homeland and they knew the system. Yeah. Well, Naomi would have done, Ruth wouldn't necessarily. But Naomi might be home, but she's not safe, or at least she's not safe from hunger and poverty. And neither is Ruth. And one of the things we can learn from that is that sometimes when we take action to alleviate a problem, things may not get better. Sometimes we think we're going to do something and something's going to get better, and it may not. There's an account of the, in the Gospels of a synagogue ruler and that speaks to this as well. His life is on the edge. His daughter's life is hanging in the balance. I'm talking about Jairus. And the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, you can find it in Matthew, 5, in Matthew 9, in Mark 5 and in Luke 8. And Jairus, this synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus on behalf of his daughter who's on the brink of death. And Jesus agrees to go. And then he's stopped, isn't he? Jesus is stopped because a woman with bleeding touches him. 
The crowds are pressing around the woman with bleeding touches Jesus and Jesus stops and makes a fuss. Now for Jairus, that delay is fatal. Well, it's not fatal for Jairus, it's fatal for his daughter. Because his daughter dies. There's no longer any hope for him. His, his, his life probably has fallen apart. He's got this despair of a dead daughter from the hope of going to Jesus. I come to Jesus, everything will be okay. He comes to Jesus and his life is over. Or at least his daughter's life is over. Don't bother the teacher anymore. The little girl is dead. How often is it that people are told, come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine? Come to Jesus, everything's going to be kunky-dory. So often, when we come to Jesus, things don't get better. Actually, they get worse. It happened for Jairus. It could so so often happen to us. It's not just a question of first belief. But when we come to him and allow him to deal with our sin as Christians, um, that's, for some of you, that's our, that's, that's our experience, isn't it? We, we respond to the gospel, we respond to Jesus, and things get worse. And I think some people say to me, you know, you're only a Christian. Christianity is a crutch. I think, well, you weren't ever, you weren't ever a Christian, were you? No. Tell you what, it's far easier to not be a Christian than it is to be one. For Jairus and for Ruth, though, they're only in the middle of their story. They're not at the end of their story looking back. We've got the whole book. We can read to the end and look back and see what's happening. But in that moment, they don't have that perspective. They can't know not to worry because it's all going to turn out in the end. But for both of them, it does. So let's learn from this. Let's be on our guard. If we respond to God, don't assume everything's going to get better. Even if we move to a new location, even if we change absolutely everything, things still might get worse. But be encouraged with Jesus. Ultimately, things will get better. Might not be in this life, though, but it will certainly be in the next life. I saw a thing on uh, Facebook this morning, which was a picture. It said, life is short, live it. And then they said, shouldn't we rather be saying eternity is long, prepare for it? If things appear to go pear-shaped, it doesn't mean you've got it wrong. The teaching that life will be easy for you if you become a Christian is simply not true. It's far, far easier to be an atheist than to be a Christian because when you're an atheist, you can decide for yourself what you do. You can decide for yourself where your limits are. You can decide for yourself what you approve of or what you don't approve of and how you live. And then Ruth ends up in this field belonging to Boaz and Boaz notices her there and he asks about her. And Boaz, his actions and the way he views Ruth and the instructions to his, to his workers shows his character. He not only complies with the law, he does more. He ensures there's something to glean by leaving instructions to the reapers to deliberately leave things for her. And he gives instructions to them to protect Ruth and he gives an invitation to Ruth to not worry about the other fields. Don't worry about those fields, just reap in my field. And in the narrative, Boaz is seen as a type of Christ. Have you heard of typology? In the Bible, it's where you can see um, uh, something foreshadowing as like a type of something that is to come. And Boaz is seen biblically as a type of Christ. I'm not going to talk about typology particularly this morning, except to say that we can see in Boaz a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us.
And here's just a few ways from this morning's text that we can see how Boaz is a type of Christ. The first thing is that Boaz notices Ruth. Uh, I've always believed that the mark of someone's character is how we notice and treat, not the people who are above us, not the people who are equal to us, but as subordinates. Your character will be shown supremely, not in how you deal with your equals or with your superiors, but how you deal with your subordinates, how you deal with those people who serve you. Every place of employment is hierarchical, pretty much. Business owners, managers, supervisors, workers. A career path is seen as starting here and then moving up the hierarchy. That's, that's how people see a career. When they talk about a career, that's what they mean. They mean if you go into a career, what you do is you start somewhere and then you move up the hierarchy and get more and more and more important and more and more and more money so that you've had a good career. And when, that's how people measure what their career is. A good career is seen as someone getting as high as they possibly can in the organisation that they're in. And people who don't do that, either because they've got no desire to or because they've reached as high as their abilities allow them to, almost seem like they're failures. But in many, in many places, in many businesses, the higher you get in the structure, the less likely you are to notice the people below you. People two or three steps higher than you might not, might not even know your name, what you do, or even that you exist at all. How those in authority treat the people below them who serve them speaks volumes about their character. And as the owner of the land employing people to harvest, Boaz notices a poor woman gleaning on the edge of the field. That speaks volumes to her. Jesus sees unnoticed people. He sees the invisible. Jesus sees the things that we don't see. He notices the people we don't notice. So, for example, in the beginning of John's Gospel, one of the disciples, Nathaniel, he's got, he has this interaction with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And our society, it seems, is, is interested and obsessed with the big, with the important, with the famous. And in fact, years ago, when you asked a child what they wanted to do when they got older, you'd hear answers like doctor or train driver. Nowadays, all they seem to want to be is famous. God isn't interested in that stuff. God's interested in the unnoticed. He's interested in the bypass. He's interested in those who the Bible describes as the foreigner and the children and the lepers and the tax collectors and those collectively known as sinners. Have you ever felt no one notices what I do? I do all this stuff and no one ever notices. If you've ever felt that, you need to know this. Jesus sees it. God sees it. You might be unimportant to some people around you, but you are not unimportant to and unnoticed by God. I mean, I used to think that whatever I did, there was no point. No one would notice and no one would care. But Jesus does notice and Jesus does care and Jesus does see us even when we're alone. He sees us when we think no one else is watching. It says in Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
Jeremiah, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places that I can't see them, says the Lord. And the answer to that is no one can hide in the secret places that can't be seen by God. David said, didn't he, in, in the psalm, he said, even in my mother's womb, you saw me. Your eyes formed me in that unseen place. You might feel small and unimportant, but just as Boaz noticed Ruth picking up the dregs and the leftovers, just as Jesus saw Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree, Jesus notices you and me and who you are and what you do matter to him. He sees you, you have value, and he notices to you. Secondly, Boaz provides for Ruth. Boaz provides not just the minimum required by the law, like I said, but pressed down, overflowing, leaving sheaves for her, feeding her, protecting her, giving her the food during the day so much that she's satisfied. She's got stuff left over to take home for Naomi. How is this a type of price? Well, Boaz provides for Ruth like Jesus provides for us. He invites Ruth to drink when she's thirsty and Jesus calls the thirsty to come and drink from him. On the last day of the great feast in John 7, Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In fact, um, in Isaiah 55, um, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat, come and buy wine and milk without money, without price. God, we can drink from him. And then he invites Ruth to eat with him and he gives her bread and wine. And the parallel to the communion, to the Last Supper, it screamed at me when I was reading it. We know that Jesus feeds us physically and spiritually. So as a couple of examples, in, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And in Luke chapter 9, well actually the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels, but in Luke chapter 9. 10 to 17, Jesus feeds 5,000 people and supremely Jesus calls himself the bread of life. So he is, he is the water of life, he is the bread of life. He brings us and he satisfied every hunger and thirst and supplies our every need. Everything we need is found in Jesus Christ. And then Boaz doesn't just provide for Ruth's food, um, he, he, he doesn't just notice her, he doesn't just provide for her, he protects her as well. He says two things, he says to Ruth, he says, restrict your gleaning to my field. I've given instructions to my reapers to allow you to do that. And then he says to the reapers, don't touch her, don't reproach her. Jesus protects us and we often think of protection in terms of physical terms, don't we? Protection from famine or illness or attack. And that worldview is embedded in our psyche and it's seen sometimes in the attacks that atheists will say, you know, how can a God of love allow this to happen to me? It's very physical, isn't it? The embedded belief in that question is that protection will always be physical. And that's obvious, but the witness of the scriptures and the experience of Christians through the ages and today are clear for anyone to see. Christians are frequently attacked and persecuted and often martyred for their faith. Jesus never promises physical protection. In fact, he says physical troubles will come. He says, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he, goes, and he also says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot fear, kill the soul. Rather, fear, them who can, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The protection we rely on is not physical, it's spiritual. 
And the protection that we can get from God, it comes from a few places. Firstly, Ephesians 6, spiritual armour. Put a spiritual armour, armour protects. Now I'm not going to list and expand on, all, on everything that each piece brings us, but briefly, we can get protection from our adoption and use of truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation and the word of God. If we stand within those things, we will be protected spiritually. And then the peace of God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 and 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything of worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned, received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds. And it says it, God will be with us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is in us as well. He's a seal, we're told, guaranteeing our is a deposit guaranteeing our redemption. And it says that um, we, we, he will give us the ability to understand, the, to comprehend the height and depth and breadth and, of, of the love of God. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're spiritually safe. No matter what happens to you in this world, you are spiritually safe. And then lastly... I just want to finish with a statement about why he's shown favour to Ruth. Ruth 2, verse 11 to 12. Boaz says to Ruth, Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to a people that you didn't know before. The Lord will repay you for what you've done and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. It screams to me of the commitment we're called to. When Jesus challenges a rich young man to sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor, and the man walks, walks away, uh, Matthew records Jesus saying this, Everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Mark records that Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. We don't have a works-based faith. The only work we have to do is described by Jesus in John 6 when they say to him, what must we do? What work must we do, um, to, do to be doing the works of the living God? Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom God has sent that's the only work we have to do but I'll leave you with this thought whatever you've given up for the gospel whatever you think you've lost on however badly your lives have turned out you can be sure that your sacrifice for the gospel whatever it is will be rewarded in eternity whatever we have lost for the gospel we will be rewarded 
in eternity. And that's good news.